Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Edinburgh and welcome to this evening's Medical Detectives Lecture. This is the last of this session's Medical Detectives Lectures. And those of you who've been here before will know that this lecture series is inspired by the work of Conan Doyle, who was a medical student here in Edinburgh at around the time this uh, lecture theatre was built. And you may feel sitting in those seats that they've probably not been refurbished since then. <laughs> but Conan Doyle, who of course, uh, was the creator of Sherlock Holmes, and he said that uh, in creating Sherlock Holmes, he was very much influenced by uh, the methods that he had seen used by his medical teachers, principally Dr. Joseph Bell, where they assembled facts as they came forward and developed new information by this method. And of course, a lot of medical advances actually still rely on this sort of method. And that's the kind of thing that these lectures are about. Our speaker this evening is Professor Charles French Constant, who is Professor of Medical Neurology and has various other heavy responsibilities here in relation to uh, multiple sclerosis and regenerative medicine. And he's going to speak on the topic of why doesn't the brain repair itself? Charles. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and, and thank you for coming. So um, this is a medical detectives lecture, so I thought I would um, embrace the spirit of the title and um, set up the problem of brain regeneration in a rather different way to the way I normally do. And so what I thought was that we would address together this question, who stole regeneration? Who took away from the human brain the ability to regenerate itself? Now, if you think about the consequences of that loss of regeneration, you think about people with spinal cord injury, with stroke, with multiple sclerosis, and with many other neurological diseases, you can see that actually this is a crime, a biological crime, but a crime nonetheless, of very serious consequences. And I'll give you some facts and figures as we go along. But so what I want to do is I want to take you through a deductive process to try to answer this question about who stole regeneration. And I think the answer will surprise you, those of you who don't know it already. And for those of you who do, I apologise in advance for some oversimplifications. I hope you'll forgive me. But nonetheless, I think you will be surprised by where we end up at the end of this talk. So, let's begin by just thinking about human regeneration in general. Now, a conventional view would be the view shown on the slide up in front of you at the moment, which is that some of our tissues actually regenerate rather well, skin, liver, whereas the brain would be classically thought of as not having any regenerative capacity at all. Now, I will show you that that's actually an oversimplification, but nonetheless, it's basically true. The liver is a particularly good example of a regenerative organ. Skin is another one, and the brain is a particularly poor example. So let's just think about liver for a second. 
So the liver regenerates very well. This is something that medical students have known for generations and taken full advantage of as well as, 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 as they drink their way through their medical careers. Um, sadly, of course, as, as we know, that regeneration is not adequate in some cases. But let me just show you what happens. So what you can see here, and I just hope my pointer was working, that's fine. This is a group of liver cells here in a normal liver. And here we have a, a little ductal structure in the liver called a bile duct. And next door to that bile duct, there's a population of cells called stem cells. I'm going to tell you a lot more about stem cells later, so don't worry about the definition. Now, if you drink too much, or if you more light, or if you get an infection of some description, or you have a, a, an autoimmune disease in the liver, what will happen is that the liver cells will disappear, and you can see there a couple of liver cells have been damaged. Now what happens is quite remarkable. The stem cell detects the damage at quite a long distance in some cases and starts to divide. It activates and starts to divide. And it produces a string of precursor cells, that we call them, that migrate into the area of the damage and then replace the damaged hepatocytes. And in that way, you're left with a normal perfectly functioning liver. And as I've said, this is a very efficient regenerative response. You can overdo it, and if you do overdo liver damage and the repair process can no longer cope, you get hepatic cirrhosis, liver cirrhosis. And of course, as many of you will know, this is actually a very becoming a very significant problem, particularly with the very large amounts of alcohol that are being consumed by some parts of the population. So the liver is an efficient regenerator, but it's certainly not a perfect regenerator. But let's now contrast that with the brain, which is a rather different story. And I want to do that, I want to talk about the disease multiple sclerosis, which, as you've already heard, is my particular area of interest. And it's the disease I'm going to return to again and again during this talk. Now, multiple sclerosis, I just need to fill you in on, on, on some ba the biology here. Multiple sclerosis is a disease of myelin. Now, myelin, and it's shown on, the le on, on your left here, yep. myelin is the insulating material that surrounds the nerves in the brain. And it has the very important property that it effectively combines the electrical stimulus that is conducted along a nerve fibre to very small gaps between the myelin sheaths. This diagram is not to scale. These myelin sheaths are about 200 microns long and the gap between is about one micron on either side. And the net result is that the impulse, the electrical impulse, jumps from one gap, it's called a node of Ronvier, from one gap to another gap. And that's a very, very rapid and efficient way of actually uh, passing an impulse down a nerve fibre. And that's very important to the brain because it means that you can have billions of axons running in all different directions, all running extremely efficiently. Now, myelin, seem to have a slight inrush. Myelin is formed by a cell called an oligodendrocyte, and that's the last time I'm going to mention that cell name, but I just want to basically make sure that you all remember it. 
And what happens is, in multiple sclerosis, is that the oligodendrocyte is attacked. Just checking there's no one from my center up there. Um, <laughs> myelin is attacked by the oligodendrocyte, but sorry, by inflammation that um, gets into the brain and destroys the myelin. And you can see that in this panel on the right here. This is a slice taken from the brain of somebody who died with multiple sclerosis. You can see the normal folded nature of the human brain. And you can see the light blue stained area there. That's where most of the nerve cells are, the cells that are actually doing the business. The dark blue area, and notice how big it is, 50% of our brain is made up of these myelinated axons. This is blue area is where all the um, axons run. And if you look carefully, you can see next to those green arrows, you can see three areas where it's almost as though a hole punch has come in and it's just taken away the myelin, which is stained in dark blue. All right, can you all see that? Okay, so that is a multiple sclerosis lesion caused by inflammation. And as a result of that, there's no myelin at all on those axons that are running in the area, that area of the brain. And that's very damaging for those axons. They will then die and degenerate. And so what we have in multiple sclerosis is actually a condition of two pathologies. Early on, we have inflammation caused by overactivity of the immune system, which we're going to talk about later. And that overactivity causes what these relapses and remissions that I've represented in the graph here, which is showing the clinical problem, where the disease comes and goes, it waxes and wanes. But gradually, as the myelin is completely lost and the axons degenerate, now what happens is the disease changes from being a relapsing, remitting disease to being a progressive, degenerative, disabling disease because you're losing more and more and more of the nerve fibres in your brain. So you lose the ability to do things like walk, which is why, of course, patients with MS end up in wheelchairs. So early on, it's an inflammatory disease, but later, it's a disease of a failure of regeneration because the myelin is not repaired, and that causes loss of the nerve fibres, and that causes degeneration. So that is the problem in the brain. Unlike the liver, its regenerative capacity is not sufficient to keep us going if we have uh, repeated attacks, and as a result of that, one gets these very, very um, difficult-to-treat degenerative diseases. And of course, these are very serious diseases. And for this is just for multiple sclerosis alone. The victims, of you, if you like, of this biological crime of the lack of regeneration is the fact that in MS is the commonest disabling disease of young adults in the UK. One in 500 people in Scotland are affected. And there are islands in the Orkneys where one in 100 people are affected. It's very interesting. It gets more common the further away you get from the equator. And we have no idea why that is, but it's extremely common in northern European latitudes. And it costs the UK a lot of money. 
I've kept the UK cost because this is pre-referendum, so I decided that you'd allow me that. And the cost to the UK is one billion or more pounds each and every year. So this is an enormous, enormous bill. Never mind the suffering and the uh, effects on patients and families, just in monetary terms alone, the cost is huge. And when you start thinking about other diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, stroke, uh, spinal cord injury, all of which are much worse than they might be, but if we hadn't lost the regenerative capacity in our brain, you can see, I think, that we started talking about unimaginably large sums of money caused by our failure to be regenerate. And because we have no treatments for this failure to regenerate at the present time, absolutely none, these are very serious diseases. Okay. So that's the end. So that's the first part. I just wanted to explain to you what the consequences of the brain's poor regenerative ability are. So now I want to go into deductive, as I say, detective mode, and let's try and find the culprit. Why has this happened? And so we do what we normally do. We go and round up the usual suspects. And the usual suspects for regeneration are shown in this slide here. There are three areas of biology that one needs to think about. The first is stem cell biology. One has to understand how stem cells are behaving. Then the second is inflammation or inflammatory biology. And the third is tissue biology. And we have to understand how the tissue that we're interested in is actually put together. What are the rules by which that tissue is constructed? And we need to look at all three if we're going to actually understand. People sometimes think that it's all about stem cell biology but, and, and nothing else. But as you will see over the next 40 minutes, that's absolutely not the case. The that's only a very minor part of the story. But let's start with stem cell biology. And what I want to show you now is that actually stem cells are not the problem. They are not the culprits. The brain is, is perfectly well provided for by stem cells. And in fact, as I will show you, early on in MS, the stem cells work very well. But then the whole process grinds to a halt despite the fact that the stem cells are still there. So... The whole thing about stem cells and regeneration starts with flatworms. Um, and this, the, the, I still find these the most amazing little organisms. So these are planarian flatworms, and in the UK they're about one to two millimetres long, and they live in streams and puddles. And they have the most remarkable ability, which is you can cut a flatworm into as many bits as you like, and each and every bit will turn into a completely new flatworm. Absolutely perfect new flatworm. And in fact, the flatworms use this ability to increase their numbers. Sometimes what they do is they attach their tail to a rock and then pull hard, the tail drops off, and over the next 21 days it turns into a new flatworm. Happens perfectly normally. But you can do it in the lab as well. You can take a sharp razor blade, and you can just chop, 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 as many times as you like. Every single bit over the next two to three weeks will turn into a new flatworm. Now, I was lucky enough to have a biology teacher at school who taught me how to do this experiment. 
he took me into a little room, gave me a razor blade, gave me some flatworms, and basically said, cut it up and see what happens. And I have to say, for me, that was where I got interested in this whole thing. I was really lucky to have a biology teacher who was such an enthusiast. But even then I knew that if I sliced the end of my thumb off with that sharp razor blade, which was a very real risk, and one, you know, it, I, it would happen rather too often if you gave a whole crowd of schoolchildren these razor blades. But even then, I knew that if I sliced the tip of my finger or thumb off, a new Charles wouldn't appear from that little bit. <laughs> but at the same time, those flatworms kept on appearing. So why is that? Well, the answer is because in my finger or thumb, I don't have stem cells that can form a completely new me. But right the way through that flatworm, there are stem cells that can form a completely new flatworm. And in fact, there are groups all around the world now working incredibly hard on flatworms because those stem cells are an absolute treasure trove for understanding regenerative biology. But what we need to do now is we need to think about what actually are stem cells, just so that we're all on the same page here, because I've used the term a lot already. So stem cells are cells that have two fundamental properties. One is that they're immortal. They live forever throughout the life of the animal or um, organism that they're in. The second is that they can divide asymmetrically to generate a more differentiated cell type and another stem cell. So they replace themselves. So if you take that combination of immortality and constantly replacing themselves when they divide, you can see that what we actually have, if you look at this little picture on the bottom, is we have a cell that can constantly generate new cells that are for the tissue in which it finds itself, and as a result of which it provides the fundamental building block for generating the cells that are required for growth and for regeneration, whilst at the same time always retaining its own identity. Okay? Now, you can actually watch stem cells in action. And this little movie I'm about to show you, on your right, is a movie taken in a fruit fly, Drosophila, which is another organism we use a lot for our research. And Andrea Brand, who was a colleague of mine in Cambridge, did this experiment. And what she did is she took a protein that is normally expressed in stem cells and she tagged it with a little bit of jellyfish protein called green fluorescent protein that we use a lot in biology because it shines up bright green. And then she took another protein that's normally in the nucleus of the cell and put on a red fluorescent protein, which again was a, a derivative of a jellyfish protein. And then she put the whole thing under a microscope and asked what happened when that stem cell divided. So what you're about to see here, you can see here the green of around the edge of the cell and the red nucleus in the middle, all right? The green is the stem cell marker, the red is the nucleus. What you'll see is that this stem cell will divide and it will generate two cells, but only one will keep the stem cell marker, and that's an asymmetrical division. You see? I find that amazing. And so that is a stem cell in real life dividing away. It's obviously the movie is looping. 
And you can see how precisely the stem cell markers are segregated all into one cell. And it's that asymmetrical division that is absolutely critical for the biology of a stem cell. So there's a lot of confusion about stem cells because there are different types of stem cells and people tend not to appreciate this. It's very important that we appreciate that there are two types of stem cell. There's the embryonic stem cell, which is derived, as its name suggests, from very early embryos um, and which are grown in, dish, in tissue culture dishes. Which And these are the cells that the fuss is about because these cells can actually turn into any of cell in an animal and they can be used to generate new animals. And we can grow these from human embryos, mouse embryos, and many other species as well. Okay? So these are what we call pluripotent because they will generate any particular cell type. But from a regenerative biology perspective, actually the stem cell we're more interested in is a different, a different uh, flavour of stem cell called a tissue stem cell. And this is a stem cell that lives in a particular tissue, and I've shown you liver already, and it can only turn into the cells of that tissue. It's restricted to that tissue. Now, for regeneration, it's the tissue stem cell we're interested in. The reason the flatworm does so well is because actually it doesn't have two types of stem cell. It just has one type of stem cell which is present in every tissue in the flatworm which can turn into any other tissue and that's what makes it so unique. We don't have that which is why we're not like flatworms with our regenerative ability. The tissues that we have that can regenerate have tissue stem cells. Okay? So what about the brain? Well, the brain's got plenty of stem cells in it. And there are many, many beautiful experiments that tell us that. And there's just a couple here I want to talk about. So my favourite bird is the canary. That's because I'm a Norwich City season ticket holder. <laughs> I kid you not. And, and I, the, the canary is a remarkable bird. The male canary sings beautifully. And every year, it learns a more complex song. And the reason it's able to do that is because every autumn, the neurons that are responsible for the song circuit in the canary's brain die. And every spring, a population of stem cells in the male canary's brain activates, generates new neurons that wire up and form a new and more complex song. And that's very important for the male canary because female canaries choose their mate on the basis of the quality of their song. So those stem cells are really kind of vital for that male canary. Now, fortunately for us, human females don't choose their males by the quality of their song, <laughs> which is just as well for me, otherwise a life of celibacy would have beckoned. How they do choose them, I don't know. But anyway, that's another question. Um, so, but what we do know is that stem cells in the human brain have a rather different function. They generate new neurons throughout life which we think play a critical role in learning and memory. And there's a region of the brain called the hippocampus that we know is important for learning and memory. And in both rats and humans we can prove that new neurons are being born throughout life in this region. So the top two panels here on the right, this is the rat, and what's being done here is the animal's been given an injection of a compound that is taken up into the DNA of a newly formed cell. 
So when you see this dark label here, or at higher power here, that's a neuron that's only just been born because this, this tissue was taken about 12 hours after the injection. So that tells you in this rat that this neuron was formed in the 12 hours before the tissue was taken. Okay? So now look at the bottom. This is really... Sorry, I've got that wrong. Um, it's the... But the... Um, this is, it's the human on the top and the rat on the bottom, forgive me. So that's the rat there on the bottom, two neurons there. Now go to the top. So this is a human. So what's happened here is there was a time when, for cancer, patients were being given a drug that was taken up into the DNA of newly dividing cells, just like the experimental drug we used in the rat. So that basically meant that in, if, when, if the patients died during treatment, which of course sadly cancer patients do, you could tell whether or not they were forming new neurons by looking at the time of the last dose of that drug and seeing how many neurons were labelled. And here you can see, this one I was pointing at earlier, a labelled neuron in this patient who was very late on in life, in their 70s or 80s. So that tells you quite unambiguously that there are stem cells in the human brain even late in life, that are able to form these new neurons. And, of course, we think, as I say, that they're very important for learning and memory. So do they have a role in multiple sclerosis? Well, yes, they do. Because we know from a lot of work using animal models of multiple sclerosis that stem cells in the brain are extremely good at repairing myelin damage. And you can see that here. Now, I need to explain this model because we're going to come back to it at least twice. So what we do here is we take an, a rat or a mouse and we inject a very small amount of a toxin into the myelinated area, which effectively kills the myelin, the myelin around the axons. It leaves the axons perfectly fine, but it kills the myelin. So that's a nice little model of an MS lesion. Now what happens is that the stem cells rush in and they repair that very efficiently over the next three weeks. And you can see that in the bottom panels. On the left here, you can see the normal myelination. So what you can see here is lots of the axons in white with the myelin, which is the dark blue rings around. In the middle, you can see after the toxin's been injected, you can see lots of axons there, but absolutely no myelin. It's all been destroyed by the toxin. But now look three weeks later on the right, and you can see that all the axons have been remyelinated. And this is done by stem cells. So in a rodent brain, the stem cells are there, and just as they can generate new neurons, they can also make new myelin. So what happens in MS? Well, I'm going to go back to a picture I showed you before, and the more attentive of you may have noticed that actually there was another sort of lesion in that white in the area of the myelin, the white matter we call it, that I didn't highlight. With the red arrows, you can see two red arrows here, and you can see next to them little light blue areas. Do you see that? Okay, so those are areas of myelin that have been replaced. So even in this patient with MS who died with the disease, there are still areas of remyelination going on. So putting all that together, we can, I think, conclude with absolute certainty 
that stem cells are not the culprits for the failure of regeneration and in, in the brain. And using multiple sclerosis as an example, we can really conclude quite conclusively that there are stem cells, even quite late on in the course of this disease, and that those stem cells are able to repair damage. There are areas which are not repaired, clearly, but that is not because there's a lack of stem cells. And I'd just like to make an observation at this point, and many of you, I hope, will have beaten me to it. If this is right, and if there are plenty of stem cells in the brain already, what is the point of having a stem cell transplant? And the answer is, for many of these diseases, there isn't any. But that doesn't, sadly, stop people spending vast amounts of money to fly to unlicensed stem cell clinics all around the world, claiming that stem cells will treat every disease under the sun. The biology simply tells you that that's not true and that it's a lack of stem cells is not the problem. Clearly there are problems, and we'll talk about them now, but it's not a lack of stem cells. Okay, so the next suspect then is inflammation. If you think about it, any damaged tissue, you get an inflammatory reaction. If you cut your skin, you get a little area of redness around. That's due to the inflammation. And as when you cut your skin, the skin will heal, we can conclude that that inflammation is probably quite good because it is obviously helping the skin repair. So is what's inflammation doing in the brain? Well, this is a rather complicated one, of course, because I've already told you that inflammation causes multiple sclerosis. So I think with inflammation, as detectives, we have to actually thinks it's slightly more complex. Stem cells are easy. We can just basically send them out. Inflammation is more difficult because we know that in MS, the inflammation causes the damage. But equally, we're arguing that inflammation might actually be good for you based on looking at the role of inflammation in other tissues that regenerate. So how can we square these two apparently very contradictory faces of inflammation? Well, it's important to realise that the immune system comes in two major parts. There's the adaptive immune system, the bit of the immune system that's designed for dealing with bugs and foreign uh, threats. And that, basically, you have cells called T cells and B cells in your blood that recognise these threats and deal with them. And that's what gets hyperactivated in MS. But we have another part of our immune system called the innate immune system, made up of macrophages and microglia in the brain, cells that actually uh, clear up damage and produce factors that promote repair. And this is the innate immune system. And these two parts of the immune system are quite separate. They obviously interact with one another, but they do very, very different jobs. And for a, a regeneration detective, it's the innate immune system we need to worry about. So, is the innate immune system likely to be a problem? Is this the cause of a failure of regeneration? Well, now what I want to do is show you some experiments that we did in my own lab, that we've only just finished, actually, that I think show us quite clearly that that's not likely to be the case, and that the innate immune system is very, very well adapted for trying to repair the damaged brain. So... 
To explain this, I just have to introduce one extra level of complexity. I've talked about these macrophages and microglia. Think of them as one and the same. They're basically the same cell type, and so from now on, I'll just call them macrophages. And these are cells whose job it is, as I said, to clear up the damage by sucking stuff into the cell and producing factors to promote repair. And they come in two basic flavours, which we call M1, that seem to promote inflammation and express these two molecules here, INOS and TNF-alpha, and I only mention those because those are the molecules that we actually use to identify them. And then we have the M2 macrophages, which seem to inhibit inflammation and um, are involved, are thought to be more regenerative. And they express another molecule, arginase 1, and uh, they express a receptor on their surface called the mannose receptor. And again, I'm telling you that because you need to know it for the next set of experiments. So to recap, we have these macrophages in the brain. They come in two flavours, M1 and M2. Based on work in other tissues, we think that the M1s are involved in, in increasing inflammation whereas the M2s are involved in damping it down. Now, what, if any, role do they have in repairing and regenerating the damaged brain? So what Veronica Miron in my lab did was she created those little lesions that I told you about, those little focal lesions, which repair very efficiently over three weeks, and she asked what flavour of macrophage was present in the lesion at different times after the injury. And the result was really striking, and we did not expect this. What we found was that early on, all of the macrophages were M1, but then at about 10 days, there was a dramatic switch, and they virtually all became M2. And you can see that here. If you look at these, these uh, micrographs, so these are pictures taken down a microscope, obviously, of the tissue. The top panel shows the M1 marker in green, that's INOS, and you can see that virtually all of the cells in there are green, whereas by 10 days, you can now see that virtually all of the cells are now labelled with the red dye, which is a marker of arginase 1, which is the M2 marker. Okay? And if you look at the quantification on the right, just look at the dotted lines, you can see that early on they're all M1s, and then you get this very dramatic switch to M2s. Okay? So clear as day, in this very, very simple model of a brain injury, so it, what does that actually mean? So what Veronica did next was she took the substances that the two cell types produced, the M1s and the M2s, and asked what effect that had on the generation of myelin in a dish. And what she found again was very remarkable. The top line on the right-hand side here shows the M1 substances, and you can see that with the myelin stained by the red dye, there's absolutely none. There's just one cell. The green is labelling these cells called oligodendrocytes, which I promised I wouldn't mention again, but I'm now glad I told you about, um, which are the cells that have the capacity to produce the myelin. Look at the bottom two panels, though. These are oligodendrocytes that have been exposed to the M2 substances, and there's a huge amount of myelin being produced. 
So that would suggest that the switch to M2s is effectively enabling the macrophages to produce the substances that make the myelin. And if that's right, then the prediction would be that if we took the M2s away, that wouldn't happen that the lesion would not repair itself. And that's exactly what we found. So, now, remember I told you that they expressed this thing called a mannose receptor. Well, the reason I told you that is because we can take little balls of lipid, we can fill them with a poison, and we can put mannose all the way around the surface, and then we can pop them into the lesion. Those will be bound by the mannose receptor on these M2 cells, and it will kill them. So suddenly you find that you have a lesion where you've killed all of the M2s, the cells that are normally there in large numbers and we know can promote myelin. And you can see that it works here. If you look at these two panels here that I'm highlighting, you can see the top one, that's the lesion with the control with, where, the manner, where these little balls we put in don't have any toxin and you can see that there's plenty of M2 cells stained in red. But at the bottom, after the toxin, you can, after the poison, you can see that the red has gone. You've killed all the M2s. And now look what happens by looking at these two panels, in fact, these four panels here. In the top two, you can see that in green, the myelin has been repaired. You can see this area here, which is where the lesion was, is now completely mended. Okay? But if you go to the lesion where you've taken away all the M2s, you can see that there's been no repair at all. So these macrophages are critical for repair, and they do a very efficient job at it as well. So we can, with our detective hat on, really eliminate the macrophages from the story. That's not why regeneration fails because we've shown using this experiment that the brain has the capacity to use its macrophages very efficiently. So what about this last one, tissue biology? Well, obviously, you'll have guessed by now that this is where the answer lies. I wouldn't leave you with no answer. So now, for the last 15 minutes, I just want to talk about tissue biology. And to do this, I'm going to switch to spinal cord injury because this is where the really spectacular advances have been made and some truly remarkable experiments have been done. So you will all know that spinal cord injury is devastating. In this little diagram on, on the left, you can see what happens when the vertebrae, if there's a very, a very um, traumatic event, a vertebrae will snap, as a result of which the nerve fibre running down the spinal cord will be compressed, and that is enough to basically kill the nerve fibres at that point. And you can see that in these two panels on the right. The middle panel shows an MRI scan of a patient with a spinal cord injury. You can see the vertebrae ab above and below, because of course they normally surround the spinal cord. And you can see here in the spinal cord, you can see this black area, which is a, cyst, a little fluid-filled cyst where the injury has occurred and all the axons have died. If you look at this micrograph on the, um, on the left, on the right, sorry, it's very difficult looking at it in different ways, you, you can actually see the cyst here quite clearly. And now in black, you can see the nerve fibres that are running down towards that damaged area, and they stop stone dead. Can you see that? 
and that's where the injury has occurred, and that's where those nerve fibres have um, died. And that is what causes the disability. Nothing will grow through this area. So clearly, it's really important that we try to identify what's going on here, because spinal cord injury is a huge medical problem. So one goes back to first principles, and in 1981, Sam David and Albert Aguayo did what I think is one of the best experiments in the field that's ever been done. They asked a really simple question, which of course is how the best experiments are done. They said, is it due to a failure of the ability of the central nervous system to grow, or something inhibitory in the environment through which they're trying to grow that stops them? All right? You can see that's very, very fundamental. And the way they addressed this is they took advantage of the fact that we know that the peripheral nervous system, the, the nerves in your arms and your legs, they regenerate perfectly well. So what they did is they took... Um, I've turned the figure over, so we'll start with the bottom one. They took a spinal cord, they cut a small section out of it, and they replaced that with a section of peripheral nerve, which is shown in the hatched colour. Or they took a spinal cord and they simply attached a peripheral nerve to the top end and to the middle of it. Okay? What they found was really, really clear. In this one at the bottom and in the one at the top, the central nervous system axons grew really well through the peripheral nerve system graft, but as soon as they touched the central nervous system again, they stopped dead. Okay? So they can grow perfectly fine. The problem is that there's something in the central nervous system that's actually inhibiting them. So that obviously this factor is not going to be present when we're developing, but once we reach adulthood, something is present in the, in the central nervous system that actually inhibits our ability to regenerate. And I think this experiment was a really fundamental advance in understanding why regeneration in the central nervous system failed, and it's led to a huge amount of further work. But the work I want to focus on was done by a Swiss scientist, Martin Schwab, who went, went, took the next uh, step, some 10 years later he started, and asked the question, what is it in the central nervous system that is actually inhibitory? And what he did, he, took a, he did a, another really simple experiment. He took neurons out of the central nervous system and grew them in a dish, and he simply put them onto different components of the central nervous system and asked which of those components actually stopped the neurons putting out their nerve fibres. And the result was myelin, which was a real shock to everyone because nobody thought that myelin had a, a function of inhibiting regeneration. But the result was very clear. If you look at these um, pictures here, so these are cultured neurons, and each experiment is divided into two. On the left-hand side, you've got a control substrate on which we know they grow, both in the top and bottom. On the right-hand side, at the top, you've got central nervous system myelin, Okay, And on the lower panel on the right, you've got peripheral nervous system myelin. 
And you can see the difference very clearly. It's night and day. There's something in central nervous system myelin that is stopping these neurons from putting out their nerve fibres. So what they did then was they identified, they, they did a whole lot of biochemical experiments to uh, try and identify what that factor was, and they identified a protein called no-go, for obvious reasons, um, which they ha have shown in a whole series of experiments is the factor responsible. And I just want to show you one experiment, again, because of its simplicity. And it was done a long time, this experiment was done about 15 years ago now, but it was a very definitive experiment. So what they did is they took no-go and they injected it into a rabbit to make an antibody, which is what you do. And so now you have an antibody that will inhibit the function of this molecule no-go. So then they did this experiment here. So you may have to look quite hard at this one. What we have here is a cell culture dish. Within this chamber here, we've got neurons from the central nervous system. And against those neurons, we've put two central nervous system nerves, optic nerves, the nerves that connect the eye to the brain, through which regeneration doesn't normally occur. All right? And this one here, on your left, has not been treated with the antibody. This one here on the right was pre-treated with the antibody before it was put in the dish. And the result they found, which you can see here, is that when the nerve fibre was pre-treated, then you got good regeneration through that nerve fibre. Okay, so that's a central nervous system uh, fibre that would not normally allow regeneration. You put a blocking antibody against no-go in, and hey presto, you get regeneration. So as you can imagine, this generated a huge amount of enthusiasm and excitement. And of course, what they did next was they actually asked in animals with spinal cord injury whether or not actually putting antibodies against no-go into the lesion would help. So the way you do that, shown in this, um, in this picture here. So here we have a picture of a spinal cord. This is actually very similar to, and deliberately, to the uh, picture I showed you before, taken down a microscope, where you've got the nerve fibres coming in on the left and then being blocked, all right? And here is the cystic area here. And what, we've done, what they've done here is they've taken a little pump full of no-go antibody, put the cannula from the pump into the lesion and turned the pump on so that it continuously infuses the area of damage with the blocking antibody against no-go. And what they see is that now, for the first time, you do see nerve fibres crossing this area of damage. Not many, but a few. You can see them in red here. And you also see some growing round as well. Again, they did not do that before. So this is in an animal model, but it's very exciting and it was also associated with functional improvement. So now, of course, what's happening is there are clinical trials going on to see whether or not this will actually work in humans, and we await those with enormous interest. But I hope you can see how a very, very simple set of experiments informed by absolutely crystal clear thinking, which is really important in biology and, of course, in detective work, has led us to a place where we really are now very excited about the possibilities for this really very devastating injury. And in fact, this idea of inhibitors 
has led people to ask, well, of course, are the, is this also true for myelin? Is this why myelin repair fails? Because in those areas where the stem cells have failed to repair the damage, is that because there are inhibitors present? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And in fact, a close relative of no-go, called lingo, um, is, turns out to be one of the key molecules that inhibits remyelination. And this is work that's been done by a very talented scientist, Dr. Shah Mi, she calls herself Misha, from Biogen, is, um, who has done a whole series of studies over the last decade identifying lingo, showing that antibodies against lingo will promote remyelination where it was otherwise blocked. And again, this is currently in quite advanced clinical trials in patients with MS to see whether or not it will promote remyelination. And this slide shows you the result. If you look on the left here, you can see the spinal cord of an animal with the myelin, as before, stained in dark blue. And this tract here on the top is the, is what the, is the dorsal tract, we call it, very heavily myelinated. If you inject a an, an toxin into that tract, you get an area of demyelination that you can see here. You can see the blue has been lost. Okay? Now that means that the myelin has been destroyed. And when they injected a control antibody, an antibody like the blocking antibody against lingo, but one that didn't have any biological activity, they saw no effect, there was no remyelination. But if they inject the blocking antibody against lingo, now I hope you can see that there's that little area of blue has come back. There's remyelination. And they've done this any number of ways. It's a very, very robust effect. Even cynics like me, who didn't believe this story at the beginning, are convinced by it. This stuff promotes remyelination. And so again, we're very excited to see how the clinical trials will work out. So that really takes us to the verdict. The answer is that the central nervous system contains molecules that inhibit regeneration. They are the culprits of our story. There's nothing missing because these molecules are part of the normal human central nervous system. And, and I find that very surprising. Why would one have a molecule in one's central nervous system whose job it is to actually stop it regenerating? Because clearly that's not what we want. So I'd like to end with two observations. One is... Don't forget that everything about us is effectively determined by evolution and natural selection. And natural selection has no interest in healthy old age because we're past our reproductive period. Natural selection is about reproduction and increasing the number of the species. So there's rather little evolutionary pressure against these inhibitory molecules. But that's a very pessimistic way of thinking about it. Surely there must be something positive. Well, there is. And I just want to end with what I think is when one of the, an amazing experiment, which has only just been published, and I think is showing us both where neuroscience is going and also provides a whole new twist to this story about um, inhibitors of regeneration. So what I'm going to argue here is that what these inhibitors are doing is they're actually preventing the plasticity from the brain from being so active that it's a problem. 
Remember that what we have in our brain are billions and billions of connections called synapses. And that as we grow and learn, we form these networks of memories and learnt behaviours that we keep for the rest of our lives. Now, those memories and learnt behaviours are formed by a, 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 a circuit. This is a, a circuit whose complexity we can't comprehend at the present time. We will one day, but we can't at the moment. But it is just a circuit. And it's a circuit made up of these synapses that have formed as we developed and have then become stable. Well, if you had a situation actually where that stability was lost and that synapses were forming and reforming the whole time, might that be so chaotic that actually our brains couldn't function properly? We might develop psychiatric diseases. We might develop epilepsy. We might completely fail to learn because as soon as something was formed, there would be nothing to keep it stable. Maybe that's why we lack, uh, we lack regeneration because there are these inhibitors whose job it is to effectively stop and stabilise. And this experiment, I think, argues that this might be the case. So this is an experiment where the receptor against no-go, called the no-go receptor imaginatively, or NGR, has been removed. And the top two panels show a mouse in which the no-go receptor is working, and the bottom two panels show a mouse where it isn't working. Now what's been done here is the, the animal has been, uh, just like I showed you in the Drosophila, where a protein was tagged with this jellyfish protein, it's the same has been done in the mouse to tag a small subset of the axons and uh, processes from neurons in the top part of the brain, the cortex, okay? And then what they've done is they very gently removed the skull, and this is shown in this little picture on the left, they've gently removed the skull over the top of the brain and replaced it with a glass cover slip, okay? So now what you can do is you can take a microscope and you can just put it up against the glass cover slip and you're looking straight into the brain. And then what you do is you use a very special form of laser optics that enables you to image what's going on 500 microns, half a millimetre away from your microscope objective. And you can watch individual neurons at about half a millimetre's distance in real time for as often as you like in these mice. And because they're expressing this fluorescent protein in the neurons, you can see it very easily, okay? So this is a fantastic technique that's going to completely revolutionise our ability to watch the brain working, see how this thing actually works. And it's shown us something very interesting already. If we look at these top two panels here on your left, you can see that at day naught, when the first experiment was done, you can see this is a, a process from a, a nerve fibre. And these little buttons here, those are synapses. Now, remember that you're looking at one nerve fibre here, but there are actually thousands of others in this area as well. They just aren't expressing the uh, fluorescent protein, all right? So these buttons here are contacting lots and lots of other nerve fibres. They're forming these connections. If you look 14 days later at exactly the same nerve fibre, just by 
putting the mouse back under the microscope, going to exactly the same place, you can see that one synapse, the one with the green arrow, has disappeared, and another one, the one with the yellow arrow, has appeared. Okay, so over 14 days in this adult mouse, you've lost one synapse and you've gained one synapse. Okay? Now, look what happens if you lose the no-go receptor, so you lose these inhibitors. Now, you've, if you look at the day naught and then day 14, and look first at the green ones, you can see that this animal has lost four synapses, just in this tiny area, and gained two. And if you do this experiment on loads and loads of animals, you can show quite clearly that what happens with these animals that haven't got no-go signalling is they're forming and breaking and forming and breaking synapses much more quickly than normal animals. And I would argue that that might not be a good thing and that the loss of stability could have a serious consequence for our ability to perform complex cognitive functions that require long-term stability of these billions of circuits we have in our brain. So I'd end by posing the question, maybe evolution stole regeneration. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Charles. That was absolutely superb and it was really very exciting. Uh, I think you thought you would maybe take a few questions now yep. and then we'll we take other questions uh, at the reception. Are there any immediate? Yes, indeed. If natural selection, which has no interest um, in us once we've passed reproductive age, then surely a molecule that inhibits regeneration, um, for instance, um, in multiple sclerosis, surely you would then expect multiple sclerosis to be a disease of people and old people. And didn't you say it was a disease particularly of young people in Scotland? I didn't actually, no. Um, it's a disease of all ages. Um, it's rare in children, but it happens. But, but it is actually a disease of all ages. But of course, what we're talking about here is, is the loss of regeneration in multiple sclerosis rather than when you get the inflammation. And that obviously occurs later on in the disease. So I don't think there's any reason to, um, to think that, that the argument would have to be that you wouldn't see it in, in young people. Because, uh, do, do you see what I'm saying? Multiple sclerosis occurs right through the lifespan. And also, the lack of regeneration is something that's much more of a problem as you get older. Hi, thanks for a very interesting lecture. Um, you posited right at the end there that um, this instability might cause difficulty in complex tasks. Been any more like those were very detailed experiments about what happened. So, on the kind of like gross level, have they done any experiments using that inhibition? And looking at changes in, say, you know, mouse ability to get around a maze and stuff like that. So, have they have they tested your idea, yeah, the, if you the, like, or is that being yeah, proposed? No, the, the, there's an. I, I, I mean, I've I've deliberately ended with a rather speculative, um, and, and and you used the word positive, which was nicely put. I mean, the, yes, these experiments are being done at the moment. I mean, though that's only just been published that study, and there is an enormous amount of interest in this whole. Um, 
the consequences of increased sprouting and increased synaptic plasticity, um, both with no-go and with other inhibitory molecules as well. And I'll be really, really interested to see how it works out. Are there any, are there any implications for um, treatment of Parkinson's and dementia? Right. So uh, Parkinson's disease is, a tri is, is where the, um, this population of neurons, really the striatal neurons, the loss of them really dominates the clinical picture. Um, th those do not appear to be normally replaced uh, by stem cells during life. So I think that with Parkinson's disease, it's going to be much more a case of trying to identify what's causing the damage in the first place and giving neuroprotective therapies to keep those neurons alive. Now, you'll also know, you'll know I'm sure, that there are transplant trials going on for Parkinson's disease uh, to replace the neurons that have been lost. But I think it is important to emphasize that what's being transplanted there are cells that are either programmed to differentiate into these neurons or have already completed part of that differentiation. So that's not really stem cell transplantation. In, in the sense of the word that I'm using it, okay? Dementia is, of course, much more complex, and there's, uh, of course, many, many different types. But clearly, I think that enhancing regeneration would have value in dementia. The problem is that it's a very, very much more complex pathology than something like multiple sclerosis. So in terms of a target, I think it's better for us to focus on diseases where we understand the pathology a lot better. Thank you very much. Uh, it was fantastic lecture, actually. I enjoyed it very much. I just would like to ask you if you could tell a couple of more words about the factors, no glue and uh, linger. What is it exactly, if it was described or crystallized or identified anyhow? Um, yes, we do, I think, have structures for both of them. Um, I don't... I'm not a, a structural biologist, so I can't really identify um, fat features in their structure that um, would be associated with a particular function. So they're both, um, they're both parts of a family of molecules that bind to this no-go receptor and also the TRAC receptors but their structure, I don't really think that's given us any leads. I'd be very happy to talk about that one further over a glass of wine, if you prefer. <laughs> but I don't think I can add much more to that at this stage. Well, maybe we should be adjourning yep, I now. I think so. Thank yes. you very <laughs> much indeed once again. That was really excellent. Thank you. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.